Welcome to the Awaken Life Church podcast. For more information about our church, please visit awakenlifechurch.net. We hope you enjoy this message by Daniel Willett. Well, good morning. We got a new... Good afternoon. <laughs> 1223. We got a new... Uh, what do you call it? Like a podium? Yeah, we got it. It came in. We just got to put it together. So this will be the last week of the music stand. Upgrades. So good to see all of you this morning. What an awesome first service and just thankful for you guys being here today at second service. So I do have a couple funny things for you this morning. And... Uh, so yeah, if you don't think they're funny, just give it a faith laugh, and uh, just laugh in faith. Ha <laughs> ha! And so, okay, here we go. A man came into the church office and said, "I'd like to talk to the head hog at the trough." The receptionist was offended and said, "Well, if you mean the pastor, you're going to need to call him pastor, but you may not call him the head hog at the trough." The man said, okay, well, I was just considering making a $10,000 donation to your church. She said, hold on, I'll get Porky on the phone for you. (laughs) I like that one. (laughs) All right, I got one more. A man, (laughs) I like this one. A man came to his pastor and said, "Uh, would you mind praying for me? He said, yeah, of course. He said, "Uh, would you mind, uh, what do you, he said, what do you want prayer for? He said, would you mind praying for my hearing? The pastor licked his fingers, sticks them into the man's ears, and very loudly rebukes the spirit of deafness and commands healing. After the pastor finished praying, he pulls his fingers out and he says, how's your hearing? The man says, I don't know. It's not till next Thursday. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, this might be a true story. I don't know. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we just pray for uh, just clarity this morning. We just pray for the spirit of joy in our hearts. I just pray, I just felt this in first service too. I just feel like there might be, there might be like some heaviness in your family right now. We just break that off in Jesus' name and we just release the spirit of joy into your family. God, we just even pray we wouldn't take ourselves so seriously and that, God, that we would just submit to uh, your spirit of joy The Bible says joy is one-third of the kingdom. So we just thank you for joy, and we just pray for the spirit of joy in this place this morning. God, we just pray for an anointing on this word that it would just penetrate our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So there used to be a banner on our website, and it said, God is good, and it's impossible to imagine him better than he is. It said, God is good, and it's impossible to to imagine him better than he is. Do we really believe he's that good? That it's, we couldn't, even if we tried, imagine how good he is. So I want to ask you this morning, do we really believe that God is good? What's our true core belief about God? Like deep, deep down, what's our true core belief about God and who he is? Is it God is sometimes good, Or God is good, but not always to me. What do we truly believe? So there's many things that are going to happen in life. And every time that there is hardship in life or there's things that happen that we don't understand, the enemy likes to 
come to us in those moments and say, yeah, I think God is not as good as you think he is. Maybe God's not so good. This is the oldest lie in the book. It's the very first lie that we see in Genesis with Adam and Eve. What was Satan saying to Eve? Did, did God really say that you couldn't eat of any tree in the garden? Really? What's he saying? Maybe God's not quite as good as you think he is. Oh, no, 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 no. He just doesn't want you to eat of the tree because he knows you'll be like him when you do. What's he saying? Maybe your trust in God is, is not well-founded. Maybe he's not quite as good as you think he is. So it's the oldest lie in the book. And when we encounter hard things in our life, the enemy wants to come alongside and say, maybe God's not quite so good. He wants to put that in our, in our mind. That's why we constantly need to return to this one truth. God is good. God is good. When we pray, we need to pray with the core belief of God is good. God is good. When we read scripture, we need to read scripture with this core belief. God is good. He's good. If you don't know that he's good, you can pull out all kinds of crazy stuff in scripture and it's been done. But when you know that God is good, when you see the story from beginning to end and you see it as a love story that God would send us Jesus, he gives us everything. God gives us his most precious possession. He gave us everything. He, broke, he bankrupt heaven. And when you see it as a love story and you know that God is good, you're able to actually interpret scripture correctly. When you're contending for breakthrough, you need to contend knowing that God is good. That God is good. He's for you. He wants your healing more than you do. God wants your family members to get saved more than you want them to get saved. God wants you to have financial breakthrough more than you could possibly want it. Because he's good. He's good and he loves his children. In Luke chapter 9, there's, there's almost a, a comical chain of events that happened with Jesus and the disciples. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 9 this morning. If you're following along in a digital version, I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard, NASB. Luke chapter 9. And we're going to be there for a while, so just keep your Bibles open to the Luke chapter 9 if you're there. Luke chapter 9. So I'm going to start with verse 1. And he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority. Say power and authority. He gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. So Jesus, in the beginning of this chapter, he empowers his disciples. He gives them power and he gives them authority. By the way, God's not afraid to empower you. He's not afraid to empower you. So he gives them power and authority. Later in Luke 9, we see a miracle of food multiplication. That's the feeding of the 5,000. In verse 32 of, of Luke 9, we see uh, Peter, James, and John. They get to see Jesus transfigured on the mountain. And then we're going to pick it up in verse 46. Luke 9, 46. It said, An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. 
But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among you all, this is the one who is great. So there's, there's two really interesting things in, this, in these few scriptures here. Number one, Jesus doesn't rebuke them for desiring to be great. They're arguing. I mean, just a few verses ago, like Jesus has given them power. He's given them power and he's given them authority. Now they're arguing who's the greatest. And you imagine this, they, they must have been like, you know, I, I saw like four lepers get healed today. And the other one's like, I, see, I, I healed six today and I cast demons out of a man. And they're just like arguing who's the greatest. Like, wow, we're like, we have some power now. Like we're actually in an argument about who's, who's doing the most miracles. So it's interesting. Jesus doesn't rebuke their desire to be great. He simply redefines and redirects their thinking on what greatness is. He tells them what greatness really is because their desire to be great was not the problem, but their concept of greatness was the problem. He says, the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. Later, Jesus would tell them, if you desire to be a leader, you must become a servant of all. So greatness and leadership, it's not about getting served. It's about taking on the heart of God and learning how to serve others well. If you have a desire for leadership, leadership is not a position that you get where people serve you. It's a position that you get where now you're commissioned by God to serve other people better. Because he's put you in a position where you can actually serve people well. So greatness and leadership... It's for the purpose of serving others, taking the heart of God, seeing people like he sees them, and serving them. Moses didn't become the leader of Israel so that he could be served. He became the leader of Israel so that he could take the Israelites out of bondage and lead them into the promised land. So if you want a short definition on spiritual leadership, that's it. Pulling people out of bondage, out of struggle, out of chaos, out of dysfunction, out of uh, unhealth and trying to help lead them, take them into the promised land. It's, that, it's metaphorically like where God sees us, like where he's like taking us to, like the, the place where he just sees like where we're just flourishing. That's what leadership is about, is taking people to that place, taking them out of bondage. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. He's our example, Amen. So God is okay with you being great. God is okay with you being awesome. God tells Abraham, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make you a great nation. He gives Solomon more wisdom than any man who had ever lived had. And he makes him great. God's okay with you being great. He's absolutely okay with it. He wants you to be great. He wants you to be amazing. He's okay with it. <laughs> so we need to break off some, some of the maybe religious lies that we've had about who we should be. God wants us to be great. So Jesus doesn't rebuke them for desiring to be great. But he makes us great so that we can serve others well. 
So the gifts and the talents that are on our lives, if they're not used to serve others, then they're being misused. God will make us great. He gives us gifts and talents so that we can serve others. But it's just so important to see that he doesn't rebuke them for wanting to be great, but he redirects their thinking on what greatness is. So number two, the interesting thing about that passage is uh, the fact that they were arguing about who is the greatest tells us that they were feeling pretty awesome. They were feeling powerful. They were feeling pretty good. Being around Jesus will make you feel powerful. They felt amazing. They're like, wow, which one of us is actually the greatest? Like, we're doing some great things here. This is incredible. Like, which one's the greatest? Let's pick it up in verse 49. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. What's happening here? So they're actually encountering, and picture this, they're just encountering this guy, and he's like trying his best to cast out demons in another person. He's using the name of Jesus, like in Jesus' name, he's trying to command demons. And they're like, whoa, whoa, stop. What are you, what are you doing? That's, a, that's our thing. You're not in the club. You can't do that. What's happening? Exclusivity. Like, we're the powerful spiritual ones, like, you can't, you're not in our club. You can't do that. What's Jesus say? No, don't do that. Stop trying to hinder people. If they're not against you, they're for you. But he doesn't rebuke them. He just corrects their thinking. Don't hinder them. Verse 51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. So in the begin- at the beginning of this chapter, Luke chapter 9, Jesus gives his disciples power. God wants you to be powerful. He's okay with giving you power and authority. And he gives them power. Why did he give them power? Just shout it out. Why did he give them authority over the enemy? Why did he give them power? What's the purpose of greatness? Yeah. What else? Why does God make us great? Why is he okay with us being great? To serve others well. So God gives them this power and authority. Jesus empowers them to go and heal the sick, cast out demons, love people, serve people. By the end of this chapter, they're ready to use their power to destroy people, to kill people, to burn down a village. God, do you want us to call fire? Jesus, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume this city? (laughs) I think they missed something. 
This is when finally Jesus rebukes them. He didn't rebuke them for wanting to be great. He didn't even rebuke them for trying to stop somebody from casting out demons. But now he rebukes them. Says, you don't know what spirit you're of because the son of man didn't come to take men's lives. He came to save them. See, God, Jesus didn't send us out as his disciples to destroy cities. He sent us to save cities. So if, if you hear Christians that are proclaiming God's judgment on cities and attaching God's name to natural disasters, I'm sorry, but you don't know what spirit they're of. They don't know what spirit they're of because that's not Jesus. He said, I didn't come to destroy cities. I came to save cities. We're commissioned by God to save cities, to serve Greatness and power is given so that we can serve others. Otherwise, it's misused. If we're using our authority, if we're using our leadership, if we're using the giftings that are on our life not to serve others, they're misused gifts. They're misused authority, misused leadership. I heard heard Bill Johnson once say, he said, you know, sometimes I think that God protects the uns- he has to protect the unsaved from Christians. Because if, if we are misrepresenting God's heart, now all of a sudden he'll has, he protects them from us. If we're misrepresenting his heart. God gives us talents, giftings, greatness to serve others. Why? Because he loves people. And he's good. He's good. The Bible says the stone which the builders rejected, meaning Jesus, has now become the chief cornerstone. This is an interesting saying because it can be found in three different places in the Bible, one in the Old Testament and two in the New Testament. And so if you kind of look at, like, obviously we can divide the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, but there's also like, okay, there's the Old Testament, there's the prophets, and then there's like the gospels, and then there's like after Jesus, you know, so there's like, you can kind of segment it more if you wanted to. And this phrase is mentioned in the Psalms, by David prophetically. He says this. He says, the, the stone which the builders rejected has now became the chief cornerstone. So David speaks it out prophetically about Jesus. Jesus says it about himself in the Gospels, referring to himself. And then Paul says it in Acts as he's witnessing. Jesus has is, is gone on. The Holy Spirit's come. Now, now Peter is actually, uh, did I say Paul? Peter. Peter says it in the book of Acts. He's actually testifying of Jesus. He's talking to the Jews, the Pharisees, and he's like, Jesus, who you crucified, he is the chief cornerstone who you rejected. So I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but before the industrial age, um, stonemasons, actually, I come from a long line of stonemasons. If I were to actually go into that field, I'd be a fourth generation But what stonemasons would do, along with the building owners, they would select a cornerstone. 
and all the other stones. So this was going to be the standard, the cornerstone. All the other stones that were laid around the cornerstone or laid on the whole foundation, the wall, they all had to match the cornerstone. They had to match the quality and the color of the cornerstone. It's a representation of our faith, our ideas about God, and our theology have to be built upon Jesus and who he is. So metaphorically, the disciples picked up a stone that says God wants to destroy cities. And Jesus said, no, no, no. You can't build with that one. That doesn't fit around the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is perfect theology. Amen? Hebrews 1.3, Jesus, I love this scripture, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Did you hear the word exact? He's the exact representation of the Father's nature. So if we don't see it, if we have a belief about God that we don't see in Jesus Christ, we have a reason to question that belief because Jesus was perfect, exact representation of the Father. The Father had not been adequately represented until seen in Jesus. It's the first time the Father was actually perfectly represented is in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus healed everyone who came to him. It says that in different passages in the Gospels. Jesus healed everyone who came to him. Does God want to heal everybody or just some? Jesus healed everyone who came to him. And he's the perfect representation of the Father. I want to read a few verses from Matthew 11. And stay with me. It might feel like a left turn, but it's not. Matthew 11, you can go there if you want. I'm going to be reading this in the Passion Translation. Matthew 11, we're going to read verses 20 through 23. I'm reading in the Passion Translation. Then Jesus began to openly denounce the cities where he had done most of his mighty miracles because the people failed to turn away from sin and return to God. Now, it's so important to understand context here. He said... It says, Jesus openly denounced cities where he'd done the most mighty miracles. So these are cities where he's done thousands of miracles. I mean, what, what did John say? He's like, if, if everything Jesus did were to be put in books, there's too many to fill the earth. So and the, these are the cities he's done the most miracles in, thousands and maybe tens of thousands, maybe more. And he starts to denounce these cities because people have failed to turn away from sin and return to God. This is specifically, and it, and it details it later in the, in the next couple of verses, it's specifically talking about people who are unsaved. 
So they've not turned to Jesus. They've rejected Jesus, even though they saw the mighty miracles. Okay? So that's the context. Verse 21, he said, How tragic it is, or how tragic it will be for the city of Chorazin, and how horrible for the city of Bethsaida. For if the miracles that I performed in Chorazin and Bethsaida had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have humbled themselves and repented and turned from their sins. Tyre and Sidon will be better off in the ju- in, uh, on judgment day than you. And Capernaum, do you really think you'll be exalted because of the great miracles I have done there? No, you'll be brought down to the depths of hell because of your rejection of me. Again, we're talking about rejection of Christ, people who refuse to come to Christ. Okay, now listen to this last sentence here. For if the miracles I worked in your streets were done in Sodom, it would still be standing today. You hear what Jesus is saying? If I had done what I'd done in your city in Sodom, it'd still be there today. People would have repented. The answer to the sin-filled cities of the world is a supernatural signs and wonders generation. Jesus just gave us an evangelistic tool in that passage. He said they would have repented if they'd seen the wonders of God. He just gave us a formula for sin-filled cities like Sodom. What do they need? They need to see the mighty works and miracles and the love of the Father. And they would have repented. God loves people. God loves people. He loves people. He loves the ones that we have a hard time loving. He loves them. And his will for them is repentance, turning to Christ. 1 Peter 3.9 says as much. It says, God is not willing. In other words, it's not his will. God is not willing for any to perish. That means to die without knowing Christ, to go to hell. But for all to come to repentance, all. I looked it up in the Greek, all means all. God is not willing, it's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's will for every person on the planet is that they'll come to repentance and come to Christ. Why did Jesus do mighty miracles in those cities? Because God's heart was for them to come to repentance. He's like, this is what he's saying in that passage. He's like, I poured myself out in those cities. I loved you guys. I, I did the mighty miracles. I showed you the Father. It's one of the came, reasons Jesus came is to show us the Father. And you still didn't turn to Christ. You still didn't turn to me, but you rejected me. And he gives us a formula. He's like, if I had done that in the city of Sodom, they would have all repented. There are Sodoms of today that are hungry for God. They're hungry for God. The church sometimes finds it easier to proclaim judgment on the Sodoms of today instead of getting anointed by God and bringing solutions into those places. We're called to bring solutions to the broken cities of the world. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy San Francisco? No, I called you to save it. I called you to be the light of the world. 
And he'll make us great so that we can serve people, serve the broken cities, serve broken people, hurting people. He'll make you great. He'll give you ideas that bring solutions in government. He'll give you ideas that bring solutions to broken families, broken marriages. He'll make you great so that you can serve others well. So that we can carry the Savior of the world into the brokenness. We have the assignment of representing God's heart well. But if we don't know that he is good, we'll try to call down fire and judgment on people and cities instead of seeing ourselves as carriers of heavenly solutions for the world. We're carriers of Jesus who said, I didn't come to destroy men's lives. I came to save them. And we are his hands and feet. All right, I'm going to land the plane. 1 Samuel 17, I'm going to read a few verses from there if you want to go there. 1 Samuel 17, we're going to read verses 42 through 47. Okay, who loves action movies? I know my wife does. <laughs> yeah, when we first started dating, I'd be like, I, I would be like, hey, you want to go see a comedy? And she's like, no, let's, let's go. I want to see something. If we're going to go to the, you'd always say like, if we're going to go to the theater, I want to see like stuff blow up and like, let's, let's like, you know, utilize. We're in this big room with this amazing sound system. I don't want to see a comedy. And, and to this day, she loves action movies and I do too. I think you've helped me love them even more. And so now this scene, this is David and Goliath, and this scene rivals probably any, anything we've ever seen in cinema. And this is specifically the, the smack talk. This is when they're having dialogue with one another. This is the, the scriptures I pulled out today. This is when David and Goliath are talking to one another. Verse 42. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the bird, to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. That's some good smack talk. <laughs> so this is where I felt the Lord was, wanted to, to land this today is God, God is good. He's good and he wants us to stop trying to fight our own battles and let him fight our battles for us. David said, the battle is the Lord's. 
why do you have so much confidence? He's like, this, is, this guy's going against God. I'm just, I'm just going to stand in the gap here. He's going against God. And if I'm the one that's, he's like, who's going to kill this guy? When he shows up, and if you look in that passage in 1 Samuel, he's basically like, this is a joke. Who's going to go kill this guy? No one? Okay, I'll do it. Oh, whoever kills him gets to the palace and marries the king's daughter? Well, I'm supposed to be in the palace anyway. That's already been prophesied over me. Okay, this is all making sense now. The battle is the Lord's. When we find ourselves trying to fight our own battles, we've, we may have gotten away from the truth that God is good. We've maybe lost some of our trust in the goodness of God and that he actually wants to fight our battles. He actually wants to bring us breakthrough more than we even want it. So if you find yourself in your life, you're working really, really hard on your battles. It may be because some lies have crept in against God's goodness. And we need to return to the, the truth of like, no, God, you are good. You are so good. You want to you fight this battle more than I could possibly want this battle to be won. You're going to fight this battle. It's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. There are some things that are not going to happen in your life unless God does them. It's not by sword or spear. In other words, it's not a natural thing that you can do. But the battle belongs to the Lord. There are battles in your life that you cannot fight without God partnering with you and letting him fight the battles for you. So I want to challenge you this week as you face challenges to say out loud, even if it's under your breath, even if it's quietly, this battle belongs to the Lord. As that thing that's been tormenting your mind comes, this battle belongs to the Lord. This is one of the ways you can take thoughts captive. That, that thing, that thought comes that wants to torment you, this battle belongs to the Lord. No, God is good. And this battle belongs to the Lord. You might find yourself saying it dozens of times or sometimes I've did experiments like this and said things like that hundreds of times a day. I went through a health challenge a few years back and I just started declaring, I'm healthy and healed in Jesus' name. So I'd go throughout my day and that thought would come, but what about, what if it's this, what if it's that? I'm healthy and healed in Jesus' name. Some days, probably a hundred times. I'm healthy and healed in Jesus' name. Nope, I'm healthy and healed in Jesus' name. <laughs> over and over, I did this for months. Healthy and healed in Jesus' name. Eventually, one day, the, all the reports lined up with my declaration. Would you close your eyes this morning? God, we want to trust in your goodness. We pray that you just wreck us again with your goodness. We pray that you're just destroying lies right now, breaking strongholds against your goodness. God, that we know you want to fight our battles more than we could possibly even want them to be one, that you want them to be one.
And we just repent for any area that we've not trusted in the truth that you are good. Repent means to change your mind. We just pray, God, you change in our mind about the areas where we've not trusted that you're good. Help us to know that you're good and that the battle belongs to you. The battle belongs to the Lord. I have some challenges in my own life right now, and I just had a moment last night where my mind was just running and thinking about these things, and I just had a moment last night where I was like, God, this battle belongs to you. And I just pictured myself just taking the battle and just saying, here, Jesus, this is your battle. And I just pictured Jesus just taking it. And I want you to do that right now. If you if you just have something that, like, a battle or a struggle or an issue in your life, just even just put your hands out, just like I did last night. Just put your hands out and just imagine you. Imagine yourself giving it to Jesus. Say, Jesus, this battle belongs to you. In fact, let's just say that out loud. Say, Jesus, this battle belongs to you. And just give it to him. Watch him take it. Now, you may need to do that over and over and over. The thoughts come back. The worries come back. Say, nope, Jesus, this battle belongs to you. I challenge you to take those two declarations this week. God is good, and the battle belongs to the Lord. The challenge comes to mind, oh, God is good, and the battle belongs to the Lord. I just want to give you an opportunity. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, it's the most amazing miracle that could ever happen in our life. It's the first miracle that needs to happen in our life is that we meet Jesus. God gave us everything. I said it earlier. God bankrupted heaven. He gave us the most precious gift. He gave us Jesus Christ, his most precious gift. And Jesus came and he died on that cross And he took your sin, my sin, the sin of the world upon himself, every bit of it, nothing left, nothing left in your life that's not, wasn't taken on the cross by Jesus. And then he says, you know, Jesus was perfect in every way. He was completely righteous. And then Jesus says to us essentially this, receive me as your Lord and Savior. I'll take all of your sin and I'll give you all of my righteousness. And the moment that we say yes to this, we become washed, clean, the Bible says, washed of all of sin, past, present, and future. So if you've never done that and you want to give your heart to Jesus, you can do that right now. If you're on live stream and you're watching us and you've never given your life to Jesus, or maybe you're here or on live stream and you want to just rededicate your life, you're, maybe you're thinking like, yeah, I did that, but it was a long time ago and I'd like to just rededicate my life and just say, Jesus, I'm yours. I receive you as my Savior. So let's just say this together this morning. You know, it's, there's no magic words to this prayer, but it's simply just a means to help you connect your heart and say yes to Jesus. So just say this this morning. Say, Jesus. Let's just say it together. Jesus, 
I receive you as my Lord, as my Savior. I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe you took my sin. I believe you took the punishment for me on my behalf. Father God, thank you for giving me Jesus. Thank you that he took my place on the cross so that I could be clean, so I could be free. I repent of my sins, Jesus. Make me brand new. Amen. Amen.